0: get up and do my thing i want to get into it man you know like I, you know i'm the man don't you can i count it off one two three four you're listening to the church politics podcast with michael ware and justin gibbony where you can get in-depth political analysis from a christian worldview transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square
1: This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, brought to you by the ANN Campaign, and we're bringing to you another episode. Uh, Justin, how are you doing this week?
0: I'm doing well. I had a better football weekend. Uh, I actually got a chance to uh, beat my arch rival in fantasy football, so (laughs) it's it's been a good trash talking uh, a couple days. I'm actually still looking for him. I won't call his name out on here, but uh, I'm, I'm looking for him because I had not heard from him since <laughs> since I got my victory.
1: <laughs> is it is it interesting the radio silence that comes after uh, after a game like that? Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, he was all talk. I mean, he had a lot to say, all kind of things to say beforehand. As soon as that that last game was over, it was it was pure silence. Yeah, I, well, you know, I don't know if you
1: heard. Uh, I mean, Josh Allen, the Buffalo Bills quarterback, had quite a bit to say on the field. Just we just had a wonderful game. We're two and zero. Oh. Uh, in the press conference so they played uh the giants in new well in new jersey uh and a reporter you know asks you know now that he's had the chance to play two straight weeks in new york you know uh does he, he he could have gone to the jets does he regret you know missing his opportunity to play for a new york team and josh allen says i do play in new york <laughs> and the, the reporter wow. was the <laughs> reporter was it. was quite quite uh uh quite taken aback by that because I, I think it was a new york city reporter he forgot that buffalo is in fact justin the only new york team we're the only team that plays in the state of new york <laughs> and uh and and also we're two and oh so uh so it's 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 been a been a good one. We got the Bengals uh, this coming week, and then week four is the big Patriots matchup, where where I get brought back down to earth. But until then, man, I'm gonna be riding pretty high. Uh.
0: Yeah, you never hey, know. Y'all hey, might we, give it to him. We've
1: come close in the past, but that's about all that's about all I could say for like the last decade. Uh so, so we'll see. <laughs> uh all right. Well let's let's jump into into this week. We got a good we got an interesting mix of politics, some potential policy movement, and then of course we have Democratic presidential debate last week that we'll discuss a little bit. But first, let's talk about the big news from over the weekend. And that is a new book is coming out called The Education of Brett Kavanaugh, An Investigation, written by two New York Times reporters, Robin Pagreben and Kate Kelly. And on uh, September 14th, the New York Times published what is an excerpt from that book? It it was it went online on the fourteenth. It was part of the Sunday review, so it was in Sunday's physical physical paper. The report focuses on Deborah Ramirez. Folks might remember this is an allegation. Deborah Ramirez's allegation came up in September of last uh, of last year, in the middle of the committee fight around Kavanaugh came after the Christine Blasey Ford allegation in the press, and also came as the committee hearings were already underway. Deborah Ramirez went to Yale with Kavanaugh and had an allegation that, and let me just read from the the New York Times story here. During the winter of her freshman year, uh, and we should say just and uh, apologize for the graphic nature of this, uh, but but this is reported news, and it's it's what's being discussed as potentially affecting the seat uh, seat on the Supreme Court. So I mean, this is just the news that we have to we have to deal with. But the the New York Times story. Uh, says that during the winter of her freshman year, a drunken drunken dormitory party unsettled her deeply. She and some classmates had been drinking heavily when, she says, a freshman named Brett Kavanaugh pulled down his pants and thrust his penis at her, prompting her to swat it away and inadvertently touch it. Some of the onlookers who had been passing around a fake penis earlier in the evening laughed. Uh, The story goes on to tell quite a bit about Miss Ramirez's time at Yale, her struggles to fit in, uh, and that this incident in the narrative of this piece was, it's depicted as sort of one more indication that she she was of a different class, that she didn't fit in here, that she was sort of an outcast at Yale. There was a set, and this has been confusing in the press. People have been conflating the two. There is a, 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 a new allegation That's covered briefly in this piece uh, Mm -hmm. that suggests another woman uh, that Brett Kavanaugh, his um, friends, uh, and this is the terminology in the report, pushed his penis into the hand of a female student. Uh, This is an allegation that uh, was brought to the surface in this context by Max Steyer. Max Steyer uh, runs a nonprofit in DC has for the past couple of decades. Conservatives have been pointing out he was also part of Clinton's legal counsel. That wasn't included in in the report. Uh, His defenders say that was two and a half decades ago. He's dedicated the last 20 years of his life to a nonpartisan public service nonprofit. But there's this allegation. Now, what was interesting about this, and then I'll toss it to you, Justin, for your thoughts, but what was left out of the published report And made in a correction uh, after Molly Hemingway, who also wrote a book on uh, Kavanaugh with Kerry Severino that is more defensive of Kavanaugh and positive on Brett Kavanaugh, Uh, Molly Hemingway pointed out that this allegation and, and the reporting in the book suggests that the female student that is actually uh, sort of at question here. Declined to be interviewed for the piece, and friends say that she does not recall the incident. And so, j- just to be uh, so, j- just a just a recap: Max Steyer told these reporters that this happened. The reporters could not talk to the f- to the female student at question and friends of the female students that they of the female students that they talked to said that the female student does not recall the incident this omission in the new york times story that just recently the reporters themselves have said they they put in their original draft but the editor, it got lost in the editing process, they've suggested. Uh, This omission has been picked up by conservatives and and really by others, really a a range of things. Uh, Hardcore conservatives are saying uh, this is a sign that the New York Times and sort of media and liberals have it out to Kavanaugh and won't be sort of confined by the, the truth and the of the reality of what's out there, they're willing to make stuff up. And then there were some, some more centrist folks who just said, uh, "And really, I'm in this in this camp to be to be honest. Like, you just can't get a story like this wrong. You can't leave out a key fact uh, like that. And uh, in such a, a tense and divisive environment as this, it was it was a big oversight, to say the least. Well, uh, Justin, it was. The reporting was enough to spark new calls for attempts to impeach Kavanaugh. There were op-eds and presidential candidates calling for his impeachment and also saying that you know the fact that he was confirmed in the first place has sort of fundamentally undermined the courts. One last thing that I'll say is this book just was it released on Tuesday. And so other than those who had advanced copies of the book, Part of the problem with this whole thing is we've all been talking about an allegation, well, really two allegations, based on reporting that very few of us have seen because the book hasn't been released. So the New York Times, which has done extensive reporting on Kavanaugh, released this book excerpt kind of as a Sunday review. So it wasn't on the front page of the New York Times, which, you know, a Another sexual assault allegation of a sitting Supreme Court justice would usually be on the front page of the Times, but because this was a book uh, a book excerpt by New York Times journalists, I'll add, which is another complicating factor to all this. Because it was a book excerpt from New York Times journalists, it was in the Sunday Review, and frankly, I, I think it's clear it didn't go through the same kinds of vetting that a Front page allegation towards a sitting Supreme Court justice would probably typically go through. All right, Justin. That that's the that's the setup. What do you think of the the story itself? But then also the resulting conversation and various calls uh, for Kavanaugh to be impeached. And then, of course, on the right, we're seeing: look, this is how crazy the left is. What well, I've seen a number of conservative folks even. Kind of never Trump folks say, you know, this was uh, someone someone tweeted, you know, how Kavanaugh was treated last year was my breaking point. Uh, This was, you know, when these conservatives realized that the Democrats, you know, quote unquote, weren't going to play fair and sort of a no holds barred approach was needed. So so what, what do you think of all this?
0: Yeah. um, Well, you and me both acknowledge and we talked about this before the show started, um, that the last thing we want to do is belittle the incident and this woman's trauma, if it's true. But but let me say this. The New York Times article, because that that just wasn't journalism, did this whole situation uh, an injustice. We have all kind of mixed motives for even putting this out here, Uh, all kind of uh, potential conflicts of interest. For putting this out here, we have uh, facts that are left out. We have, you know, at one point they tweeted an apology for 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 something they put out there. Then they erased the tweet and they detracted this and detracted that Uh, this was handled terribly. Uh, And I think uh, uh, Ramirez uh, is owed an apology. Uh, And and one thing I would tell the, the brothers and sisters listening to this podcast right now is. You can slow down on the issue. You know, when you look at Twitter, most progressives know that this happened for sure. Most conservatives, most conservatives uh, know that this didn't happen for sure. But the truth is that very few of us, unless we're there, know exactly what what happened. Uh, and, and that's the reason that we have due process. Uh, and that's the reason that we have a, the legal system that we have, or at least the review, the standards of review that we have when it comes to a judge and things of that nature. So. It is okay to slow down and and recognize that sometimes these issues are a little harder uh, than they may seem initially. You know, one of my major problems with the article, because if this happened, it was terrible. It shouldn't have happened. uh, And, you know, a a conversation about consequences uh, needs to be had. But one of my major issues with this article, Michael, is just how much narrative is in this article. You know, there's so much narrative about People made fun of her shoes and then they did this. There's so much build up to this privilege conversation, but it doesn't it's not necessarily hitting on the allegation. It's not necessarily relevant to that particular allegation, because if you're saying that Brett Kavanaugh was as reckless as as some are making him out to be. I don't even know that he took all those things into consideration at some drunken party at 18 years old. Maybe he did. I don't know. But there was just so much narrative. That And when you have that much narrative and then you leave out facts, you're not supposed to lead the reader in that way. Right. The facts are supposed to supposed to lead them, not the narrative. And this was just too narrative heavy. And so if if we have an injustice, we have something that happened that shouldn't have. That's unfortunate that this type of story would be the story that covers it, Uh, because I don't I think there is a lot of reason to doubt the motives of the writers, not necessarily of of Miss Ramirez. But of the writers, because they have a book coming out and all these other things that come into it. And then we're talking about a very serious matter. And then immediately everybody has to call for uh, Kavanaugh's impeachment. And if you're like Biden and you wait for a second, then that's a huge problem because you didn't do it immediately before you even got a chance to, to follow up, to talk to your team, to see what was really behind this. And that's the problem. It it makes it seem like it is political when it might not have to be uh, so political. Right. So much of what we see that see today, Michael, is performative. Right. We see so much performance and we see so much uh, fake outrage that when something really happens, people just don't know. Right. Your average person who who are probably not people that are making all these comments on Twitter that of what they know when they don't know, it's hard for them to decipher what should happen. Because there's just there's just so uh, so much smoke and mirrors uh, and, and it really hurts the process and it could hurt this lady if this is true or hurt Kavanaugh if it's not true. Uh, but what we need to know is that people who are in positions, whether you're a journalist, whether you're an elected official, you have a responsibility to be fair and objective in how you relay these things to depend on the facts and to make sure that your motives and incentives for you Aren't clouding or obscuring what's really going on in the situation, and in this particular instance, there's so much going on. There's so many different interests and, and all this other stuff that I don't know that uh, this ever gets cleared up. I don't know that it you know that we can ever tell exactly what's going on because it was fumbled so so poor. It was fumbled so badly uh, by the New York Times uh, writers in this uh, particular instance. Hey, hey,
1: Justin, I, I think that's right, and just to add to it, we had sent. Uh, b- between us, uh, th- this video that came out in the last few weeks, to your point of Christine Blasey Ford's attorney suggesting at an event that part of the motivation for Ford coming out with her allegations was so that there would be an asterisk by Kavanaugh's name should he be part of a decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Now, that 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 doesn't prove that w- what Ford claims happened didn't happen. Not at all. You you can uh, you can uh, that that could have happened, and you could decide the the personal risk is not worth it unless the, the 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 cost is you know him not just being on a on a federal court, but being at the Supreme Court. That's a that's a decision one could make. The fact that Ford's Attorney would put that out there as acceptable, or, or as um, as a uh, 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 as something to to sort of cloud the case, and I don't know I don't know what the intent was of saying that in public, but it's just another one of those things that adds to the, the confusion around what's driving. Folks, Uh, what what's is this all a political game? And statements like Ford's attorney made uh, are certainly uh, not helpful uh, at all. Uh, So I I agree, Justin. There's just a there's too much happening for the average citizen to follow. And then when what's happening turns out to be false or it turns out to not have the full picture or it turns out to uh, be missing a, uh, a key fact that needs to be corrected uh, in uh, the most important newspaper in the country and maybe the world, uh, it, it's uh, – a. Uh, how are people supposed to engage on on these issues? And, And then when you add to that, just the pressure to respond immediately and emphatically, as you noted, it's just a combustible situation. And at the heart of it is sexual abuse, a topic that has affected millions of people in this country, men and women, that's being thrown around like a political football with very little recognition of the fact that it's, It's not just that, (laughs) like if the allegations are true and really, if they're not uh, at the core of this story is deep brokenness and sin and uh, and and really great, great uh, evil. Uh, And and that's being missed in all the op eds and the the pushback.
0: Yeah. And, And let's just say this. Let's be honest with ourselves for a second. Many of us who are saying that we are certain that this happened or we're talking stridently about it, it's because we want it to have happened. Mm. Many of us who are stridently saying that it didn't happen or that we're certain it didn't happen because we don't want it to have happened. Right. We want to be able to point at the other side and say it was fake or say, right. yeah, I knew you guys were just these vicious uh, sexual predators. Yeah, right. If you don't know, you don't know. Right. And and all this one upsmanship and and feeling like every time something could possibly go wrong with your political opponents, you need to kind of highlight it and emphasize it does nothing to help the process and makes you actually part of the problem. So let's all try to do a little bit better.
1: All right. We're going to take a break. When we get back, we're going to talk about a potential way forward on the gun control debate uh, and more. This is the church politics podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics podcast. Now, last week there was an interesting discussion as Congress uh, returned. We saw a reopening of the conversation around gun control and action on gun control, particularly around expanded background checks. And you know, as as we've seen before. A a lot of mixed signals from the Republican Party. Donald Trump suggesting that he's considering expanded U.S. gun background checks last week. Pelosi and Schumer expressing uh, openness to moving forward. Now, last week, there was a suggestion that they believe that a House bill uh, that passed around background checks was an essential part of a proposal. Republicans reacted to that very strongly and it appears though things could change that enough pressure was exerted on the Trump White House to suggest that uh Trump will not be supporting the House bill. And so we're we're at a place where both sides want background checks or at least that's what they're saying. There's a House bill that seems to go too far for Republicans. There's a Senate proposal from 2013, that could be a potential it failed back in 2013 uh, but that it, it could be a potential starting uh, starting place for negotiation. I would add that there are especially in the context of a democratic primary, th- there are uh, quite a few Democratic candidates and activists that believe that it's not worth it to work with this administration at all, that anything that you're going to, on this issue, anything that you get out of this administration and this Congress is going to be too weak to be meaningful. And that at this point, what we've learned, uh, again, these are sort of Democrats, a certain slice of Democrats talking, what what they've learned is that, uh, is, is that, if you want to get real gun control action done, it, it's it's going to be a, a electorally driven. It's going to be about a running sort of uh, some of these uh, NRA supporting Republicans out of office and changing the composition of of Congress. Justin, I'll admit I'm pretty distrustful of of this administration on guns, especially. 14 months out from an election where the NRA is a key political partner that they'll be relying on to turn out Trump supporters. Uh, I think that we've seen uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar has been running ads where she was pressing in the Roosevelt Room of the White House, she was pressing President Trump on gun control measures he said in the meeting, I think she says 18 times, uh, he said he supported a measure. And then just days after, after, you know, a phone call and a meeting with the NRA, President Trump uh, reversed his position. And, and so I, I just don't trust this administration um, on these issues. But, you know, Justin, perhaps perhaps they're at a point where where they've decided that unless they give a little... That the political pressure around guns, particularly as uh, one report suggested over the last few days among suburban women, which is a key demographic that that Trump did well enough in in 2016 in places like Michigan and places like Wisconsin, in order to eke out a victory, but that suburban women want, want some gun control action. So, so maybe this administration has made the decision that, that they need to give a little in order to protect the NRA's broader interests and their, and their policy, uh, their overall policy, uh, preferences. I'm going to have to see it first. Uh, Justin, do you think that there's any potential for gun control legislation passing the house, passing the Senate and being signed by president Trump, uh, Uh, over the next 14 months?
0: Oh, there's certainly reason to be skeptical. Um, As as you noted with Klobuchar, uh, the Trump administration has just not been uh, either forthcoming or worked with integrity when it comes to this conversation. And so you can't really believe anything that they're saying. But I will say this, as legislators, uh, it is their job to try right it's the job of the folks in the house and in the senate to continue to try to get something done if you don't like what they come up with then you don't vote for it but you have to try and saying well i just don't trust them nothing's going to get done that's no that's not an option i think you have to push it and I, and, and and yes i think there's a chance that they understand we got i mean with with all this going on and and the momentum that you see coming from the the uh, coming from gun control to say, yeah, we need to do something about background checks on the right would make sense to me. Uh, we had a, um, maybe a couple months ago, we had, we went in depth about this gun conversation and kind of the narratives on both sides. One of the things that we covered was that almost 90% of Americans support background checks that, you know, when one way the NRA has pushed the conversation so far to the right that really giving up background checks, really, they might not even be giving up that much. Uh, That's just kind of the tip of the iceberg for some people on what needs to happen. And so for it might not be much for them to give up. There's an opportunity to make that happen. And if that happens and could save one life, then I would say that it's worth it, Um, because what we can't do is just wait until our party controls everything to get things done. And when I hear people saying, well, we just, you know, people throwing up their hands and just giving up, I'm hearing that you, you're you're not going to get anything done. You're not going to push until you control everything, which uh, may never come uh, or even when it does come doesn't mean that you're going to have the right policy either. So they have to try to get something done. I do see some uh, incentive or motivation for Trump to do something on that. Will it be all that the Democrats would want? Absolutely not. But that doesn't mean that nothing gets done. Uh, I do. You know, when it comes, they really do have a problem when it comes to that uh, suburban suburban mom, and they need to take care of that. And the NRA might know that that's a big problem, too, that yeah, it's one thing to give a little on um, background checks. It's another thing to have Democrats take everything over, which I know the, R- uh, the NRA wouldn't want. So it's possible. Uh, you, you never know until you really push the issue. And so they've got to keep pushing that issue uh, and hopefully get something done, even though it's not going to be all that uh, a lot of the Democrats want.
1: I think the the key sort of or one of the key signals here will be if you start seeing or you start seeing reports that President Trump personally or his staff are exerting pressure within their own caucus. Until I start seeing reports along those lines, I think that this is p- more likely to be, you know, political rhetoric to to signal uh, a greater flexibility than is really there. But I would encourage folks to keep your eyes eyes out. If, if if you see reports of President Trump making phone calls to Republicans who might be critical votes or on the fence, on Uh, A significant background checks measure. uh, Then you start to think, well, maybe maybe this could get could get done if 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 the Trump administration is willing to spend some capital on this. Like as we discussed last week, like they did on criminal justice reform. You know, they they put pressure on some Republicans to not be as critical as they otherwise would be, and the measure the measure got done. It's it's definitely going to be interesting to see. And uh, you you know, it's uh, we've seen. Uh, really this issue become one of the leading issues and topics of debate in the Democratic primary, which which is what we'll discuss after the break. Uh, This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And just when we saw the first a debate with all of the leading candidates on one stage uh, this past week. So you had uh, former Vice President Biden, Sanders, uh, Harris, Warren, Sanders, uh, all, all there on stage. And along with six other candidates, Klobuchar, Castro, O'Rourke. An interesting debate. I'm interested in in what you have to say. My main takeaway, and, and I haven't seen too much conversation about this. The most important thing that happened in the debate, in my mind, was what seemed to me a clearly planned and thought through move from Joe Biden to tie Elizabeth Warren to Bernie Sanders directly. So this was in the first half hour of the debate uh, around health care. And to the extent that this portion of the debate was discussed, it's been discussed in the context of former Vice President Biden trying to hug Barack Obama even more closely. Uh, he, he said to Elizabeth Warren on health care, he says, I know I'm with Barack and you're with Bernie. And so everyone's been talking about the I'm with Barack thing. There's been a lot of debate about how much credit he can claim. And you know, to that, I just say the, the, the president himself has been pretty clear. And so have some of his leading staffers around him that former vice, vice President Biden can claim quite a bit of credit for uh, the Obama-Biden administration. But what was important, even more important than that, was tying Warren to Bernie. And the reason, in my mind, is that you have between the two of them, depending on the poll, as much as 40% of the electorate tied up between the two of them. And here's just my my prediction, my, my read on this. I think Joe Biden would much rather go up against Bernie Sanders in a two-person race in April, May of next year than being a two-person race against Elizabeth Warren. And so by tying Elizabeth Warren to Bernie Sanders, by basically saying, Elizabeth, your healthcare plan is hawking off of Bernie, it sends the message to folks that if what you really want is that sort of democratic socialism uh, approach, uh, uh, an approach that is uh uh, antagonistic towards corporations and and big mis- big business and going after bankers and and uh, the one percent. Why go for sort of and again, this is not my opinion. I think this is just sort of the strategy. Why go for a watered down version of Bernie when Bernie's actually in the race? And so it sets up the situation where Elizabeth Warren has to either decide. Is that association with Bernie helpful for me, or in order to in order to rise above Bernie in this race, do I need to attack Bernie and separate myself from Bernie, which is something that she's been very? uncomfortable doing. Elizabeth Warren has not gone after any of her Democratic primary opponents so far in this race. And I think the Biden campaign wants to to change that. I think they want to stir it up. I think they want Elizabeth Warren to be in a position where she has to draw starker contrast with her opponents uh, in a way that will invite more critique of her. So that that was my main takeaway of the debate. I I don't think too much change structurally uh, for this race, from from the debate, uh, I don't think we'll see huge poll jumps uh, because of what happened in the debate. A couple significant things happened. I mean, we saw Castro, Buttigieg, O'Rourke try and battle. I think only one of them is going to make it past Iowa, and New Hampshire, and so I think there's there's an interesting sort of narrative and and a thing going on there. Uh, but 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 really, I think this was the first. The, the the first real signs of how the top three frontrunners at this point are planning to relate to one another as we start to get closer to, to votes. Uh, J- Justin, what did, what did you think of the of the presidential debate? Was it was it different having all of the frontrunners share share a stage, or, um, or or would you have liked to see uh, you know a, a smaller debate stage
0: uh, split over tonight? I prefer one night, um, but that one night was long. <laughs> That's the one thing that stuck for me. That was, a, and I'm a, as you know, I'm a political junkie, and that was long. Was so that was long. a very, that was a marathon. And and one thing that I saw with even Biden, who started off very strong, if, if that, if that, if you would have cut that debate in half, Biden would have had an excellent debate. But I think he went from a really strong debate to fading away because he had his last few answers to the questions were unintelligible. I don't even know what he was talking. He went off on a whole bunch of different tangents and he just lost it. Uh, So I thought I thought Biden's I thought Biden ended very poorly, but started off fairly strong. Very good move by him to to, uh, tie Warren to uh, Bernie, because either she's going to have to say, yes, I am the Democrat socialist with Bernie. Or she's also been trying to make herself more palatable to folks in the establishment. Right. So you're almost saying choose a side, but you also bring it to Bernie, because I'm wondering how long is Bernie going to let her kind of ride on his back? Right. And, and kind of creep in and get into his numbers. At what point does he turn and say, hold up, you're not you know, you're not like me. Uh, and, and I think Biden is kind of pushing at that. But I don't know what Bernie's waiting for. I mean, I, I guess he you know, in, in a lot of polls, he's still up. But as far as trajectory and momentum, he should be worried about Elizabeth and I, I, Elizabeth Warren. And I, I agree with you, Michael. Uh, Biden would much rather go against crazy Bernie, as, as somebody would call him, than go up against Warren. And, and I say it that way to say Warren has a lot of the same policies, but she makes them seem more reasonable. And so that's Bernie is a much easier target. Uh, to go back and forth with and debate with than Warren would be. Now, one is because, again, she just is more smooth in how she presents stuff. I think Bernie s- seems a little bit too angry sometimes, but also because she's uh, you know, she's a, a woman as well. And so, you know, in debates and in campaigns, it is harder for a man to attack a woman than it is for him to attack an, another man. It just comes off differently. And and any anybody you talk to who does debate prep or strategy knows that. So, there, yeah, for a lot of different reasons, that was smart for Biden to start pushing that. And you got to wonder at what point uh, Sanders steps up and, and really pushes forward. Something else I noticed that I thought was a down point was Castro's uh, kind of attack on Biden. Uh, where where Castro was basically like Biden said something. Castro was like, "Wait, did you forget what you just said a minute ago?" Uh, and I, what was I think the issue was uh, whether people would automatically be placed into um in, into it's Medicare care for yeah, all, or, right. would, you know, or would they opt in?
1: Yeah, that's right. And so he's
0: like, "Oh, you just forgot what you just said a moment ago," and it was very clear that he was trying to say, "Oh, you're old." And I just didn't think it was necessary. I, I mean, I, I for one, I think he might have been wrong because I, um, Biden was clear on what he was trying to say, as, as I recall it. But two, it was just a low blow and it wasn't necessary. It, w- it wasn't substantive. And if Castro is going to come up, I don't think you want to come up in that manner. Now, you had some of our Twitter friends on the progressive side saying that was so great and that was strong and getting mad at anybody who questioned it. But that just wasn't that's I, I think Castro, from what I've seen, is better than that. And I think he's got to find another way to come up than kind of being rude and nasty, although it's going to get some folks on the far left going. Most people don't want to see that.
1: Well, right. I mean, part of the problem is Castro was the last person to make it into the debate due to polling and fundraising. And so part of the problem with the DNC rules, and, and to be clear, I don't think there is a perfect a perfect solution. I, I think any approach that you have to... Uh, a party primary is going to have upsides and downsides but part of the downside of of having these accelerating metrics uh for how you make a debate and therefore really how how you stay in the primary uh is you know th- these these candidates at the bottom that they, they they really have to make a make a show and make an impact and get some free media in order to drive up their name recognition get more donations and try and do better in the polls. For Castro, I think that's a big piece of big piece of what this is. Now the flip side is you, you get a strong sense and there's been some reporting around this that even among Castro's major donors, that the major donors behind all of these candidates are not in the mood to see too much intra-party fighting a lot of activists want to see a big debate take place within the Democratic Party. But I think we saw Senator Harris pay a bit among donors uh, for her, uh, for the busing attack on Biden in June. And uh, Castro, from what I've read, has come under significant pressure from folks who say, hey, look, let's have a debate about ideas, whatever. But uh, whoever emerges out of this primary as our nominee and right now Joe Biden is the front runner and has been the front runner since he's uh since he's jumped in the race uh we need them to beat Trump and so let let's not give republicans more uh more ammunition and that that's just the state of play i will say justin i'm actually someone who wants to see a lot of interparty debate i think that's what a primary is for i, I do think castro's uh attack was not only below the belt and, and sort of mean-spirited. It was also factually inaccurate, as you said. But I do want to see healthy debate about, about the issues. I, th- I think that's, that every four years is really the only opportunity that Democratic voters get to choose what kind of party they want, to be honest. Uh, I mean, it's one of the very few mechanisms uh, for, for primary voters to say, actually, we want to go a little to the left on this or we want to go a little more to the center uh, uh, on this and so I, I want a big robust debate but yeah you, you got to do it in a way that that lifts you up to to higher ground rather than rather than seeming desperate rather than seeming mean-spirited
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are debates, right? You're gonna compare, you're gonna contrast, you're gonna do some uh cross examination. That's what it's all about. I mean, you're supposed to have those conversations. You're supposed to say, Well, your record says this, but you did something else. Uh that's not necessarily what Castro did. Right. And, and yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm not for the kind of, hey guys, let's just all be nice and not say anything. No, yeah. no, 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 no. <laughs> let's have a real debate so the so the voters, that's what this debate is for. Yeah right. So the voters can see the differences between you. And and so the vote. So you can kind of expose it's an it's an adversarial kind of process. But that still doesn't mean that it should go down into the mud. Right. So there's a way to say, hey, here's your record. Here's what you're saying. Or here's why your plan doesn't work or you can't pay for your plan. Those are all fair. There's a lot of fair game out there. Right. There's so much to to talk about that has nothing to do with belittling people or, uh, you know, basically saying somebody is is old without saying it and all that stuff. It's just not necessary. There's so many issues to hit on and to dig into uh, that they don't have to take it there. And I hope Castro learns his lesson from that time. And you I mean, let's be honest, people it's, it's tough on that debate stage. You get people telling you to do certain things. Oh, yeah. You have that, you have that moment and sometimes you get the moment wrong. So I'm not saying that, you know, his uh, career should be over or anything like that, but I would hope that he didn't bring that same uh, posture to the next debate. If he's in it. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Just, it's going to be interesting seeing how this, how this race, uh, you know, plays out traditionally after labor day you Start to see, especially folks in the early primary States, begin to pay a bit more attention. Uh, I think you know we're gonna to start to see things really settle once we get closer to December. I mean, right now you have significant percentages of the primary electorate saying that they' they've paid almost no attention to the race at all. And so the the undecided portion of the electorate is is really significant. Uh, and so as these poll numbers change, it might not even be so much that there's a whole lot of persuasion going on. It's just going to be new people, or it might just be new people sort of entering the process, which is, uh, you know, going to be, going to be, uh, uh, obviously really important and indicative of, of how this thing is going to, uh, how this thing is going to end up. We do have another debate in less than a month. So they will be back in October. Uh, in any, any, uh, Anything you're looking out for in between, uh, you know, this last debate and the debate we have in October, are are you looking to see any
0: uh, candidates sort of make a make a jump or make any big moves? Yeah. So you have to look at kind of the second tier candidates, as you stated, most of those second tier candidates will not make it after New Hampshire. So what type of strategies and and what type of messaging are they going to put out there to separate themselves uh, and, and that's going to be interesting. And then again, I'm, I'm going to keep saying it. Bernie cannot allow uh, Elizabeth Warren to win Ohio and then come and then beat him in New Hampshire. And he's in I, I think he's in danger of letting that happen. When does Bernie Sanders start to to start to aim at uh, Elizabeth Warren? And And how does that come out? You know, how does that look? What does he call her out on that? That could be a very interesting back and forth. And I don't know how he avoids it. So I'll be looking out for that.
1: Yeah I think that's a key point right so if if Elizabeth Warren is able to best Bernie in Iowa they go to uh they go to New Hampshire which is a neighboring state for Elizabeth Warren so there was just a big uh, New Hampshire Democratic Party event where all the candidates came through and, and most of the reporting from that suggested Elizabeth Warren. The crowd was extremely loud from her. Now, part of that is she shipped in folks from Massachusetts, but it's important. She's going to be able to ship in volunteers from Massachusetts to be knocking on doors in New Hampshire. So she has a she has a big advantage uh, there. And then South Carolina, You know, Joe Biden's in in really strong position there. Now, anything can change, but just I think you're exactly right. Things are Bernie's looking pretty strong in national polls, even his head to heads against Trump right, right now. It looks like he's and again, this is just a snapshot right now, but polls have been pretty significant, pretty consistent that Bernie is the second strongest challenger for Trump right now, second only to Joe Biden. And yet the way the primary calendar is set up, he could like if 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 Elizabeth Warren bests him in the in the first three contests, it's gonna be very hard for him to tell the left wing of the party, oh I need to stay in this thing. And split up sort of the 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 left wing vote against uh, you know potentially Joe Biden. Uh, it's it's going to be a real interesting interesting uh, position for him to be on. So yeah, expect to see increasing conflict, even if it's not out in the open between between Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. That's why I'm watching for the, the second thing I'm watching for Justin is uh, Cory Booker. Uh, I've been saying you know for. For months that he's going to have a moment, I think he's now had a second incredibly strong debate performance. I think he did well. There were a couple moments that were, but overall he was very strong. He's been giving speeches at the right places. He he's been uh, getting great responses at some of the cattle call events. I I continue to think Cory, and he has an amazing staff. Uh, so I continue to think Cory Booker is going to have a moment in this campaign where uh, where he breaks at least close to the front, uh, the the first tier, uh, and it'll just be a matter of, of what he's able to do with it. But you you, you could look for Cory Booker to have a similar. Pop once folks are paying really paying attention to this race. Once you have the the JJ dinner in Iowa and some of these big moments closer to the election, where, where where candidates have traditionally broken out, I think Booker's positioned to to maybe do that.
0: Booker could do that. I think one of the problems that Senator Booker has is sometimes he catches himself trying too hard, and even sometimes in his speeches, he he just seems like he's trying too hard, and it doesn't come off as authentic at least in a lot of conversations I've had with people. So if he he maintains what he did in the last debate and the one before, I think he's good. Sometimes he can be a little much. And so I think he'll need to watch out for that. But uh, he certainly, I think, can make a a run for it, especially with Kamala kind of, uh, you know, trying to find her way, it seems. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, she sure is. All right. Well, folks, uh, I think
1: that brings us to the end of this episode. want to thank you for listening Again, we're, we were able to touch on a, quite a bit here uh, and always appreciate you being a part of the conversation. Just before I uh, set up to record, got really kind message from a, a, a listener expressing his appreciation uh, for this podcast. And I just want to let you all know how much we appreciate you. And how how vital you are to the conversation that we're having at the and campaign and as a part of the church politics podcast so I uh, thank you justin any
0: any closing words? y'all take care man just stay strong uh keep your eyes open and stay aware and we will see you next week all right folks have a blessed one this is a church politics podcast'm yeah. <laughs> the ways of runaway slaves I'm brave I'm unchained'm I'm Douglas